Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were in Israel, and we had just left the salty waters of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on Earth. We were driving to a little-known spot off the side of the road, a large salt statue that locals call Lot's Wife. Currently, we're pulled off the road to the side of a stone wall, and on top of that stone wall, almost acting as a barrier, we can see a large white structure and that's all salt. We're gonna get out in just a moment and decide for ourselves as to whether or not that is actually Lot's wife or just a common salt deposit that we find in this area. But since we're enjoying the AC inside the tour bus right now, let's stay here to recap the story of Lot and why people call this structure Lot's wife. You'll remember that last time we learned about how Lot was Abram's nephew. Remember, Abram is the same person as Abraham. Uh, his name was later changed after he left his homeland, right? So he became Abraham instead of Abram. When Abram was told by God to leave his homeland and go to a new place that God would show him, Lot came with Abram. And we have to remember that Abram leaving his homeland was all in preparation for Abram actually becoming the father of God's chosen people, the Jewish nation. Now, Lot and Abram both had so much livestock, they were, they were rather wealthy, right? And their shepherds got in quarrels about flocks intruding on the others and just kind of this crossover. So Abram made the executive decision to split them up. Lot saw this green and luscious area and he chose that to be his new home. So he took his flocks over to the side of the green, the luscious, the, the nutrient-rich land. And it's kind of ironic that all that, that green would turn to burnt brown later when God actually destroys the area that Lot chose to make his home. We'll talk about that in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah a little later. Now, Abram was left with the land of Canaan, which was certainly not as nice as Lot's choice of land. But let me continue on with this story a little longer. We are in Israel, so learning about the founding of the Jewish nation is important. And all of this is going to play into the grand story. So after Lot leaves, God tells Abram this, Look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Basically, Abram is going to end up with all of this land, but not only that, he is going to be the father of a nation that will end up being as numerous as the dust particles of the earth. I can't even imagine counting all the earth's dust particles. And that is exactly God's point. Abram's descendants will not even be able to be counted. Now, if you know a little bit about Abram, 
you'll know that that part is strange, that he's going to have so many descendants that one person couldn't even count them all. Why is it strange? Well, it's because Abram was not even a father at this point in his life. And at this point, this man is quite old, probably around 75, and his wife is also advanced in years. So, I mean, she's a little younger than him, but, but definitely not in childbearing or child-rearing years either. There's something else I want to point out, though. The God of the Bible cannot make a false statement. He cannot lie. He is holy and he is perfect. And so the readers of scripture should, and not only should, but must take his words uh, very seriously. So let me repeat again a portion of what God said to Abram. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. That key word, forever. The land that Abram is looking at, the land of Israel, which we, virtual voyagers, are now standing in, belongs to the Jewish nation as per a promise that God made to the first Jewish person, Abram, thousands of years ago. It's comforting because in a world of uncertainty where promises are made to be broken, we use that, that term, right? Promises are made to be broken, meaning they're made, but they're broken so often that they might as well be made to be broken. In a world like this, it brings me a certain sense of comfort and maybe also calmness to think that it is certain that the land we stand upon now has been promised to a certain nation, to the Jewish people, for as long as the world endures. It is their homeland. As an American, I think about the sacrifices my founding fathers and also the first citizens of the U.S. had to make to establish the freedom we now have in the U.S. And I'm thankful every day for my nation and its preservation of freedom and liberty. But there's not one sentence in the Bible that goes like, um, God promised that the U.S. would go to George Washington and all of the founding fathers and first citizens who broke off from England and, and fought in the War of Independence and that nation will be theirs forevermore. The United States enjoys no such recognition in the Bible, but we're not alone. No other nation actually gets such recognition. Only God's chosen people, the Jewish nation, springing from Abram, Abraham, can claim such a promise. And it's one of the things that draws me to Israel. I believe that's why it's so special. I've traveled to a number of countries, but there is only one country I have traveled to where the entire plane of people consistently, consistently, very consistently, meaning without fault, every single time I've landed, the plane will erupt in applause when the plane lands. And it's not because the pilot completed a remarkable feat in the air or landed well sure it's obvious that I'm talking about Israel, right? Each time I look out the window as we descend into Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, I get chills because all around me, I am seeing a promise from thousands of years ago being fulfilled. The Jewish people are in their promised land. They haven't always been here. That's, that's the reality. But God's promise has remained even when they have disobeyed him and have been exiled from the land, which has happened uh, a number of times over the thousands of years of their existence. But that's why it's so special to be visiting Israel at a time like this. It's a very recent development to have over six million Jews 
in this small piece of land. Six million Jews in the piece of land that's about the size of New Jersey, one of our states in the United States. And only in 1948 did Israel become recognized as a nation. So that actually means, I'm guessing, that some of you virtual voyagers would have been alive when Israel was not a nation. But today it is. The Jews have returned to claim what is theirs, and that is why it's so special for them to land here in their home. That's why applause erupts when the plane lands in Tel Aviv. Seeing both God's promise fulfilled and also his hand over the Jewish nation is a cause for celebration. We're definitely on a little bit of a tangent here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. But since we're sitting inside an air-conditioned bus and you're all in those cushy seats that can recline, oh yeah, definitely take advantage of that. I hope you'll oblige me to just tell you about one other thing that I found out just this week that's interesting. Jerusalem Syndrome. You know, I wasn't aware of this until a rabbi friend mentioned it to me when we were talking the other day back in Jerusalem. In fact, I had to do a double take when he told me the name. I thought he was joking, calling it Jerusalem Syndrome. Oh, Rabbi Teller is a character. Actually, you all know him. Rabbi Hanach Teller? He took us on a tour of Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Remembrance Center, soon after we first arrived in Israel here on our tour. Anyways, he remembered all of you and sends his well wishes, and he thought I should tell you all about this Jerusalem Syndrome. Jerusalem Syndrome is a phenomenon where a completely normal and mentally stable person turns crazy upon arriving in Jerusalem. And by crazy, I mean that they become psychotic and very religiously, religiously excited. There is something so special about Jerusalem. We all know that. We've experienced it. It's God's holy city. And people sometimes are just overcome by that. They fall into a religious psychosis. Some go completely crazy and start claiming that they are the, the Messiah for the Jewish nation. And sometimes it wears off on its own a week or two later. But sometimes they actually have to get sent, uh, no joke, to a psychiatrist or hospital. Okay, and Rabbi Teller warned me that I might get some strange looks from all of you, maybe some fearful looks, but I think only about 40 tourists a year actually need to get hospitalized, and many of them have pre-existing mental health disorders. So it's not like all four and a half million tourists in Israel will come down with this uh, Jerusalem syndrome. The only known cure to Jerusalem syndrome is to get away from the holy city. It's crazy. It's as if Jerusalem has this magnetic power and some people are not able to get out of the way of that tractor beam, like in Star Wars, right? The tractor beam that pulls Han Solo's, Han Solo's uh, plane in. It's like they're not able to get out of the way of the Death Star's tractor beam and enjoy the city for what it is today and just experience it in the present. You know, I've never had Jerusalem syndrome, um, but I do know that there's something special about Israel and Jerusalem more specifically, and maybe you all felt it too. I know many of you have said that this is your first time in Israel, right? And so it made me think back to my first time being here as well. I was just in awe of the history here. And when I say history, I really mean history. It's possible that if the Jewish tradition is correct, which I, I can't really speak to since the Bible doesn't give us any insight into 
what I'm about to say, but it, it's possible, according to tradition, that the first part of the world to exist when God created it was in Jerusalem. It's said to be this stone called the Foundation Stone, and it's actually now inside the Dome of the Rock, which only Muslims can access. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if that is where the world started, since Jerusalem is God's holy city. And of course, beyond just the Foundation Stone and, and the tradition there, many biblical stories took place in Israel. And those are some of the oldest historical records that we have. I, I think it's cool when I find out that my hometown, right back in the United States, had some involvement with the founding of our nation, the U.S. But again, I have to keep in mind that was hmm, 300 years ago, le well, less than 300 years ago, of course. How about we increase that by a factor of 10 or more? You know, 3,000 years or more ago, we're talking about some serious history having taken place in Israel. And you all have seen a good part of Israel and have a nice framework, but there's certainly more to see. We're going to try and fit it all in on our tour of the land of Israel here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Okay, so Jerusalem Syndrome. I suppose the closest, I was thinking about this, the closest I've come to Jerusalem Syndrome is when I went to the Western Wall for the first time, and we've all been there as well, right? I remember distinctly walking into the crowded area where all the women were on one side, right? Remember, at holy sites, men and women are kept separate so as not to distract one another. And then I remember walking down the pathway, and all of a sudden, I was just overcome by emotion. I just wanted to go and touch the wall. But I went on a night when it was very crowded, and I didn't know if I'd be able to get to the front. And I remember feeling very overcome with emotion, not knowing if I'd be able to get to the front and touch the stones. I, I felt drawn in to get to the front and just touch them and pray. And, and it wasn't, I don't, don't misconstrue me, it wasn't that I believed that the stones had power, but they're so special because they are what we have left of the temple structure. And I know it's only a retaining wall, but we really have no other remnants of the temple structures besides some retaining walls, so they're very special. The temple was God's dwelling place. His presence literally dwelt there. I mean, that is special. That is unique. And so the stones of the Western Wall just drew me in. I had to touch them. And maybe it was because there were so many religious people around me. And of course, they're piously praying for the return of the Jewish Messiah and the rebuilding of the temple. I also think maybe it was just the location. So many people have come to the Western Wall and earnestly lifted up requests to God, the God of the universe. I mean, maybe it was just because the temple was right over there to the side at one point, and God just feels that much closer when at the Western Wall. For whatever reason, I wanted to get to that wall, and I did. But at the end of my time of prayer, I remember specifically leaving because I could only stay at the front for about a minute. It was just so crowded, like I said, and I wanted to give others my spot so they could also have the experience of praying at the wall. But when I walked away, I, I don't know how to describe it, it felt like I was leaving a piece of my heart at that wall. And as I walked back with my family to our house in Jerusalem, I was about 10 minutes away, we were all quiet and somber. We had all gone to the Western Wall together. It's as if that wall had some effect on us. Our hearts were changed, and that's probably, uh, that's probably the best way I can describe it. 
Okay, so there's also one other thing I want to mention from last time, and then I promise we'll get out and check out this salt deposit that may be Lot's wife. You know, I was talking to Rabbi Teller about how I told you all last time that Israel is home to the lowest and highest points on earth. And I said it was home to the lowest point because the Dead Sea is truly as low as you can get on this earth. That's not debated. But is Israel home to the highest place on earth? You know, I said that it was last time, and I used that exact term, highest place. You'll remember that I argued that Jerusalem, and specifically the Temple Mount, right? I argued that Jerusalem is home to the highest place on earth. The Temple Mount is where the temple used to stand, and the temple is where God dwelt among men. That's where he chose to make his dwelling place among us. And I said it was as high as you could get in a spiritual sense because God is infinitely above us. Think about it this way. Even if we were on the tip of Mount Everest, 29,000 plus feet above sea level, we would be no closer to God, relatively speaking, than if we were down at the Dead Sea, 1380 feet below sea level. So Rabbi Teller corrected me here as we were talking. He says that calling Israel home to the highest place has a topographical connotation, right? So calling something the highest place, we think Mount Everest, right? So he actually said that he prefers the term most spiritually elevated for Jerusalem. It is the highest one can reach in terms of communing with God. It's not remarkably high, right? It's not Mount Everest, yet God chose to dwell there. So it's high in a spiritual sense, most spiritually elevated. The height of a physical location, like I've said, will get no man any closer to God. So thus, Rabbi Teller's correction from Jerusalem being the highest place, like I said, to his most spiritually elevated is probably a correct, a correct correction. And so I thought that was an interesting point. Well, you all have been patient with me as I've explained a few things to you from here inside the bus, and now it's time to get out. So grab your sun hats, water bottles, and cameras, and let's head out to see Lot's wife here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. So we talked about the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah last time, so I'm not going to review all of that in detail. But of course, the basic story is that God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with raining fire and brimstone because they were so wicked. And that's the place where Lot and his family lived. So God was not able to find 10 righteous people in those cities to spare. And that was as per Abraham's request. But God did send angels to Lot and his family to tell them to leave before it would be destroyed. So Lot ended up getting out, but his wife disobeyed the angel's command to not look back upon the destruction, and for her disobedience, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. Now we're standing in an area with a lot of salt deposits and some cool structures formed from those deposits. I mean, off to the side, there is even a salt mountain around here. I think you can kind of see it uh, straight above us in the distance a little bit. Anyways, up above us is one of those cool structures. It's very large. But you can kind of see how it looks like a woman, maybe. It's not pure white since it's been sitting out in the open, so it's going to be tarnished, obviously. I I know some people think that they're going to see this pure, dazzling white structure like you get with table salt, but no. Since this area is believed to be the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, you can literally find sulfur balls in this area, which would only corroborate farther the belief Uh, since we know God did rain down sulfur on these cities. 
So I, I guess it would make some sense that Lot's wife would have looked back on the burning cities in this general area. I personally do think it's a little far-fetched to say that a huge salt structure is Lot's wife, but it's cool to imagine. It gives us a mental hook in our brain to hang the story of Lot and, and Sodom and Gomorrah and also his wife being turned into a pillar of salt. So why do people say this is Lot's wife? It looks a little like a human, but we also don't know exactly where she looked back. The Bible doesn't detail that for us, so this could be it, but there's no reason to think that. You see what I'm saying? And also, while it does look like a human right now, albeit probably too large, we have to remember that this structure has been sitting out in the elements for a very long time. It definitely looks different compared to what it would have looked like thousands of years ago, and that's why I struggle to make the direct comparison. So if this probably isn't Lot's wife, why do I even bring you here? Well, like I said, I want you to be able to remember the story of Lot's wife and her disobedience more clearly. I remember first reading the story of Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt when I was young, probably in Sunday school. And I remember also immediately thinking that it was such a harsh punishment. I mean, she only disobeyed one small commandment, and it didn't even seem like that big of a deal. But maybe that's exactly what we're supposed to get out of the story. And it, it's what I at least get out of the story now. Disobedience to God is not tolerated. He punishes our disobedience in different ways. Not everyone gets turned into a pillar of salt. But when God gives people a command, we must obey because there is no alternative. Even when we receive a command as small as, don't turn around and look, obedience without question is the only option. Well, that's Lot's wife. Now you know the story and you've even been to a potential spot for where she was turned into a pillar of salt. You've actually seen it. Hopefully you have some good pictures ready to show all of your friends when you return back home. Let's jump back in the bus and start heading back to Jerusalem. It's been a long day that started early as we left for the Dead Sea right as the sun was rising, and now it's later in the afternoon. So I know you all will want to get back and thoroughly shower to get the remaining salt from the Dead Sea off of you, and then also eat dinner and go to bed. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue to explore the land of Israel.